Hello everyone, Doug here from Nomad Athlete Radio. Today I am thrilled to share one of the exclusive interviews from the Plantapalooza Longevity Festival, taking place right now at lovecompliment.com. The festival features some of the biggest names in plant-based nutrition, fitness, and longevity, and it's absolutely free to participate. Plus, throughout the eight-day event, we are running our biggest sale on compliment products ever. Up to 51% off your favorite plant-based multivitamin, protein powder, greens powder, omega-3s, and more to support your long-term health, energy, and immunity. This sale is going to be bigger than Black Friday, so there has never been a better time to try our complement plant-based nutrients for the first time or to stock up for the next several months. Head over to lovecomplement.com to learn more. The sale and festival end November 1st at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern. All right, let's pass it over to Matt Tolman, who will host today's Plantapalooza interview. Compliment and plant-based news present Plantapalooza. Join me in welcoming our latest headliner to the stage, interviewed by Compliment co-founder Matt Tolman. Dr. Cyrus Kambata, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Um, I'll do a really quick introduction and ask you to tell us about your journey, and then we're going to get into sustainable weight loss strategies strategies for long-term health. Um, and if you don't mind, I'll just quickly ramble off this list of accolades. I'm not going to get to all of them because it's a, it's a thick little bio you got here. Oh, don't worry. The, <laughs> the most impressive of which is a PhD uh, in nutritional biochemistry, uh, which That's is right. sounds pretty intense. Uh, but of course, you have your bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Stanford, a little known uh, school in California, mm -hmm. and then went on to get the PhD in nutritional biochemistry from UC Berkeley. That's right. uh, and you've authored a bunch of peer-reviewed scientific publications, um, but most impressive and most impactful, you are also the co-founder of Mastering Diabetes uh, and Amla Greens, uh, a cool supplement company. But Mastering Diabetes has worked with, probably correct me if I'm wrong, tens of thousands, minimum thousands of, of people to help thousands. them in their journey. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, my sister is a type one diabetic. We've been living with that in our family for 30 years. So is my cousin. Uh, I think about it for my little boys. Um, so I know how impactful that is. And uh, the journey you guys have taken publicly with your own health and, and um, the mission that you're on and the work you do to help people is just so commendable. So maybe we can start there, just give us a, a real quick um, primer background into you, and then we'll go a little bit into metabolic health and this question of type one diabetes, type two diabetes. Now we hear about type three diabetes, all kind of wrapped up into obesity. And hopefully if I'm any good at my job today, I'll, I'll bring us over to weight loss and how that all that kind of comes together. And we'll, we'll sure. try to make this as practical for the audience, but um, thanks for, for putting up with the long-winded intro and thanks again for making yourself available today. Anytime, Matt, it's, it's so good to be with you here and uh, I appreciate the invitation. So thank you, thank you a ton for inviting me. Uh, to, to answer your initial question, um, my background effectively is exactly what you described, but if we kind of go backwards in time and rewind the clock to 2002, uh, I was 22 years old. I was graduating um, from Stanford with a, a degree in mechanical engineering. And I, quite honestly, I was just done with college. I just wanted to be done and move on with my life. And um, 
I actually ended up getting diagnosed with type one diabetes. I actually got three autoimmune conditions simultaneously. Uh, the first one is Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is a basically a reduction in thyroid hormone opat from your, uh, from your thyroid gland. Then number two was alopecia universalis, which is just a really fancy way of saying you will lose your hair. And I lost all my hair on my head. I don't have eyebrows. I don't have eyelashes, no ear hair, nose hair. I can't grow a beard, no chest hair, nothing. I used to have hair. I don't have it anymore. That was the second autoimmune condition. And the third autoimmune condition was type one diabetes. So all three of those set in within a six month period. And I was like, what did I do to myself? Is this, is this my fault? Or am I just some, you know, am I the victim of really poor genetics? So at that time, my life was a little bit confusing. I didn't understand what was happening to me. The doctors couldn't explain anything. They didn't really have any solutions for me, but they basically told me to start eating a low carbohydrate diet because when you're living with type one diabetes, that's the prescription. And it, you know, it turns out that that's also the prescription uh, for all forms of diabetes. And we can get into that in a lot of detail later, but they said, eat a low carbohydrate diet because carbohydrates are bad for you. And when you eat carbohydrates, your blood sugar will go up. And when your blood sugar goes up, then you're going to need a lot of insulin to cover that blood sugar, to bring, bring your blood glucose values back down. And then that's just going to make your life difficult. So make it easy on yourself. Don't eat carbohydrates. Don't eat fruits. Don't eat potatoes. Don't eat pastas. Don't eat grains. Don't eat cereals. None of that stuff. Try and eat red meat, white meat, chicken, fish, dairy products, cheese, eggs, turkey burgers. And I was like, mm, this is the, this is the best disease I've ever had before. Like I'll eat all that stuff. I love this. Right. So I did that for about a year and it flat out didn't work. I mean, the promise, there were two promises. Number one, blood glucose would come down. Number two, insulin use would come down and stay down. But neither one of those happened because as I was eating this low carbohydrate diet, the way they were describing, my blood glucose was a disaster. It was all over the place. I mean, any given morning I would wake up, blood glucose is supposed to be between call it 70 and 130 in the fasting state. And I take a look at my blood glucose meter and my glucose could be anywhere from like a 44 upwards of like a 390. And I was like, this is weird. I don't understand. And then I would go exercise on a daily basis because I love exercise. And the doctors told me that if I exercised, it would help enable me to control my blood glucose. But it didn't seem like it mattered how much I exercised, whether I went and played two hours of soccer or whether I did some you know, high intensity weight training, it didn't matter. My blood glucose was very erratic. And then to make matters worse, over the course of the first year of eating a low carbohydrate diet, not only was my glucose hard to control, not only was I using more insulin, not only was I getting frustrated with the fact that I couldn't control my blood glucose, but <clears throat> my muscles began to hurt. And when I say hurt, I mean, I would wake up in the morning and I would be very stiff. I could, I could literally feel the musculoskeletal inflammation that was inside of my muscles. And I, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. I know what it feels like to be sore from a workout, but here's the thing. I went and I played two hours of soccer yesterday and I loved every minute, but right now my chest is sore. That doesn't make any sense. Right. And then I would go and I would, you know, go to work for eight hours and I would sit in the front of the computer and I would do a bunch of stuff and I'd get up and my hamstrings were like, you know, steel rods. So this kept on happening over and over and over again. It started to impact my ability to exercise. By the time I, you know, a year into this process, I was like, this just isn't working anymore. This is just flat out not working. 
my energy levels were pretty low. I checked myself in to go see a therapist because I just like could not make sense of my life anymore. So uh, it turns out that uh, at about the year marker, I ended up uh, meeting a gentleman named Dr. Doug Graham. And Doug Graham, he went on to write a book called the 801010 book. And he basically teaches people how to eat a raw food diet. And I didn't know anything about diet, to be perfectly honest. I didn't know anything about human health. All I knew was that what I was doing just flat out wasn't working. So he was like, Cyrus, I'm going to turn you into a, uh, a plant eater. I'm going to turn you into a raw food eater. How do you feel about that? And I was like, Doug, you can do whatever you want to me. I really don't care. I just want to feel less crappy, please. And he was like, your life is going to be transformed in ways that you cannot even imagine right now. So just strap on your seatbelt. So uh, he helped me change my diet. And I actually switched to eating a plant-based diet overnight. And uh, within the first week of transitioning to eating a plant-based diet, and getting rid of all of the meat and dairy products that I described earlier and eating literally nothing but fruits and vegetables, my glucose fell dramatically. Now, so you would think, here, here's, here's the kind of crux of the situation. Um, the medical world, the sort of traditional allopathic world says carbohydrates are bad for you. Don't eat fruits, don't eat potatoes, don't eat you know, starchy vegetables because those are all, they contain carbohydrates. They're going to make your blood glucose go up. So I followed that methodology. It didn't work. I went to start eating with Doug and Doug basically told me, he's like, listen, carbohydrates are not bad for you. They never were bad for you. They never will be bad for you. Truth is there's an interplay between how much carbohydrate you're eating, how much protein you're eating and how much fat you're eating. And if you can control it to your advantage by lowering your fat intake and eating more carbohydrate, then you'll notice that your blood glucose becomes significantly more controllable. So that's what I did. I switched over to eating a plant-based diet. I lowered my fat intake dramatically. And I increased that enabled me to increase my carbohydrate intake. And by doing that, I was eating instead of hundred grams of carbohydrate per day on the low carbohydrate diet, I started eating 600 grams of carbohydrate per day, 600 grams a day, which is a very large amount of carbohydrate. And I was expecting my glucose would go through the roof, but my glucose came down and my insulin use came down and I became more hydrated and I started sleeping better. And the pain inside of my muscles went away and my anxiety disappeared, and I didn't have to go to a therapist anymore, and my life transformed in front of me over the course of the next couple of months. So I finally put myself back to graduate school because I, I was like reborn from the inside out, and I was like, I, I want information. Like, what happened to me? What happened to me? What's happening to me right now? And in this process, I began to realize that I'm not just some weird freak of nature, that the transition that I went through and by changing my food supply from a predominantly animal-based diet to a predominantly plant-based diet, um, there are probably a thousand important lessons to learn from that about what it's doing to my brain and my thyroid gland and my liver and my kidney and my pancreas and my muscle tissue. But the fact of the matter is eating that way was a ticket to a new life for me. And I went on to start a business called Mastering Diabetes, like you mentioned earlier, with my, my business partner, Robbie, who's also living with type 1 diabetes. And uh, the two of us have, have directly touched the lives of more than 10,000 people who are living with all forms of diabetes, including prediabetes and type two. And, you know, person after person after person comes to our coaching program and is like, what is happening to me right now? My A1C is coming down. My blood sugar is coming down. My body weight's coming down. My blood pressure is coming down. My cholesterol is coming down. This feels incredible, right? And so here we are, you know, fast forward 20 years from the time I initially started this process. And, uh, you know, I am fortunate that my life has changed dramatically. And my goal in, my, in life right now is to try and give this information to as many human beings as possible so that they can transform their lives using the power of a plant-based diet 
and a uh, and and the, the the pillars of lifestyle medicine. Wow, what what an amazing journey, um, and uh, even more so because you you turned what most people would say was a a great misfortune into you know a journey where you discovered something and now you know have created something of a life's purpose, which is just an incredible thing. So um, kudos to you and thanks for all you do. Um, there is so much to dig into here. Yeah. You know, I was just writing down some some new questions. I have other questions. Um, so we're going to have to turn this entire thing into a lightning round because we're going to cover <laughs> philosophy and public policy and ultra processed food and, and, and still try to get to some really practical lessons that people can take away from this. Um, but I guess, you know, high level, um, and this is just for my own curiosity to get your perspective, but why do you think, you know, I think people understand, you know, the, the lobbying interests and, you know, the just in, entrenched uh, sort of belief systems that keep the mainstream medical field promoting certain diets to the mass audience, right? But within the, and perhaps it's, that's the answer, right? It just infects the, the um, endocrinologist and, and, you know, uh, more specific um, diabetes focused population for the same reason. But I'm curious, why do you think, like when it's so clear there are these results, right? And it's like so remarkable, why is it that there's not more of a conversation around this and, and doctors are so apprehensive to, to embrace like a, a ultra low fat diet for a, a type one or even a type two diabetic? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I've spent the better part of 20 years trying to think about that answer and I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't claim to have the actual answer, but the more that I've learned, the more that I've realized that there's a couple of principles that we can fall back on. Number one, Doctors are not to blame. Doctors are phenomenal people. I have five doctors in my family, incredibly hardworking people, altruistic. They, most doctors, 90 plus percent of all doctors got into medicine for one reason and one reason only, and that is to help other people. And so they go into it feeling the drive to try and significantly improve the quality of life for so many people, whether they're living with chronic kidney disease or type two diabetes or cancer. And yet in the process of getting trained to be a physician and in the process of being a physician, they get grinded into submission, not because that's what they want, but they get taught information in medical school that they don't have any control over. And that information, unfortunately, is influenced strongly and heavily by the pharmaceutical industry. That's a problem because rather than being told at the, in the formative time when they are learning literally how to diagnose a metabolic condition and how to treat the metabolic condition. That is a prime opportunity for you to say, okay, here are the risk factors for type two diabetes. And here are the diagnostic indicators of type two diabetes. And here's the treatment for type two diabetes, a whole food plant-based diet. And this is why it's so powerful. They could do that, but instead they say, here's the diagnostic criteria. And how do you treat type two diabetes? It's called metformin. Here's a pill, open this thing up. And if that doesn't work, then switch to Trulicity. And if that doesn't work, then switch to Ozempic. And if that doesn't work, then something else, right? So doctors from a very young age, they're like, oh, okay, cool. If I'm trying to quote unquote, solve problems, then I, I'm just going to open up this, this medicine chest and I'm just going to start picking out one medicine after another. 
right? Again, not their fault. That's just the education they receive. So number one, the education in medical school has to change, period, end of story. No questions asked. Number two, uh, health insurance companies uh, do not help in any way, shape, or form. Because then a doctor starts practicing, they go into medicine and, um, you know, let's say you're, uh, you know, you know, you've done your residency, you're now practicing as a family practice physician, you look at your schedule, and now your schedule has 50 patient visits a day, 50. How the heck are you going to see 50 patients? How much time can you spend with each patient? Maybe 10 minutes. And then what, they, what doctors do is they end up going into the room. They don't have very much background information about the individual. They have to sort of get the individual to talk really quickly. They put a bunch of information in the computer, and then they don't have time to be able to actually educate them about the power of a plant-based diet because number one, they never learned it. Number two, they don't have the skills. And number three, they don't have the time. So it's much easier in this system to basically be like, all right, your blood glucose is high. Uh, you can talk to my nurse and then the nurse can prescribe you medication. Got to go. I'll see you in three months. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're set up to fail, period, end of story. And it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's a frustrating system. And the nice thing is that the world of lifestyle medicine, there are, there are thousands of doctors around the country who are now waking up to the idea that they don't actually help people get healthier. They're not reversing the root cause of metabolic disease. They're just prolonging the agony. That's all they're doing. And so these doctors yeah. are waking up and being like, you know what? I got to do something. I got to change my career. Let me learn what is a plant-based diet? What is exercise? How do I utilize all of the pillars of lifestyle medicine to actually transform people's health? They go teach themselves. Boom. They completely change their practice from the inside out. And it's a whole different ballgame from that point onwards. <sighs> Just not fast enough, right? We need more doctors to achieve that transformation. Um, Agreed. Let, let me, let's go back to, to set the table. And, and I know that there are textbooks on this question. Um, I know you could write a textbook on this question, but I'll mm -hmm. ask you to, to give us the super high level definition, yeah. just for people who don't have the context for this conversation. What is metabolic disease? You know, what's type one, two, and now what we hear of like type three diabetes this, like I say, I'll, I'll ask as, as brief as, as you can answer what is a very big question just so people understand what we're talking about. For sure, for sure. Okay, so if I were to think about metabolic diseases in general, if I say metabolic diseases are basically diseases that affect your, you call it either your digestive tissues or your muscle. That's kind of the way that I think about it. Digestive tissues, muscle, I'll throw a thyroid gland in there. It's basically everything south of your head. Let's put it that way. Okay, if there's a condition that's affecting your your, your your, your pancreas, your liver, your kidney, your cardiovascular system, your large intestine, your small intestine, you name it, all of those, when those dysfunctions occur, um, are considered metabolic conditions. When it comes to diabetes in particular, we used to have two different versions, the type one and the type two, but now it's gotten complicated. There's five versions. There's six versions. There's type one, type 1.5, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, gestational diabetes, and now there's type three diabetes. Okay. So there's many different, you can think of it as like multiple different flavors of ice cream and there's six to choose from instead of 31, <laughs> right? Fit, fitting. It's a, fit, it's a fitting analogy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the, the, I'll give you the 30 second elevator pitch type one and 1.5 are autoimmune conditions. What that means is that something happened to trick your immune system into, uh, into destroying the insulin producing beta cells in your pancreas. You have a very small number of insulin producing beta cells and they are critical for regulating your blood glucose values. 
when those insulin producing beta cells are killed by your own immune system, you cannot manufacture a sufficient amount of insulin. And all of a sudden your blood glucose goes very high. The solution is to inject insulin from the outside world. It's called exogenous insulin, but that is not the only solution. That is part of the solution. And the other part of the solution is to get full control over your lifestyle and your diet in particular. And by doing that, you can keep your insulin use low. Type one affects young children, usually beneath the age of 30 and is usually developed in a very young years, one year old, two years old, eight years old, five years old, 10 years old, something like that. Type 1.5 diabetes is a slow progressing adult onset version of type one diabetes that affects people over the age of 30. So there's now people who are getting diagnosed with an autoimmune version of diabetes and they're 46 years old, 62 years old, 73 years old. They're living with type 1.5, which is a milder version of type one diabetes, but it still is autoimmune. So those are those two. Then you got pre-diabetes type two and gestational, okay? Pre-diabetes is the precursor to type two diabetes. And the two of those go hand in hand. You, you, you actually, there's a, there's a progression. You go from being normal, you know, non-diseased to a state known as insulin resistant. When you develop insulin resistance, you can then progress into living with pre-diabetes, which is basically like the warning sign that your blood glucose is getting elevated. And then if you don't correct that and you continue to become more insulin resistant, you eventually become type two diabetic. And when you are type two diabetes or when you have type two diabetes, um, you can still reverse it. You can go from type two back to pre-diabetic and you go from back to pre-diabetic all the way down to non-disease. That can happen in about 80, maybe 85% of all cases. But again, you have to employ the right lifestyle in order to do that. Gestational diabetes is a form of insulin resistance that causes a blood glucose elevation in pregnant women. They usually find out about it somewhere around the 28 week marker. They go, they get a test and they say, oh, by the way, your glucose is elevated. You're going to have temporary diabetes. So women go into it, like, okay, cool, sweet. I got to keep my blood glucose down because I want to protect my baby. And what women don't realize and what the medical institution does not do is let them know that when they're living with type two, I'm sorry, when living with gestational diabetes, it significantly increases their risk for the development of type two diabetes into the future. So even if a woman is able to quote unquote, you know, reverse gestational diabetes or get rid of it, you know, by the time when she delivers and she no longer has it, the chances of her developing type two diabetes in the future go way up, way up. Right. And in addition to that, the chance of the, 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 the child actually having blood glucose dysfunction at some point in their life goes up significantly. Okay. The final version of diabetes is called type three diabetes, which you had alluded to earlier. Type three diabetes is diabetes of your brain. It's insulin resistance of your brain. And this is a new version of diabetes that's come, come around in the past maybe like 10 years or so. And what researchers are finding out that <clears throat> is that when you are living in an insulin resistant state, it can certainly affect your cardiovascular system and your muscle tissue and your liver predominantly. But it also negatively impacts your brain, which you can't feel today, but you're gonna feel it 20 years into the future. And 20 years into the future, you're going to have what's known as cognitive decline, where your brain's just not going to function as well. Your spatial recognition will get weird. Your memory will go out the door and you will significantly increase your risk for dementia. And that could progress to Alzheimer's disease, but doesn't necessarily always do. So rather than insulin resistance being only a metabolic condition that affects everything from the neck down, 
insulin resistance also affects your central nervous system. It affects your brain. You just can't feel it today, but you will feel it in the future. Does that answer your awesome. question? It, it does so beautifully. I feel way smarter now. Um, <laughs> although uh, very concerned about my wife and gestational diabetes, my kids and one and 1.5, myself for 1.5, everyone for two, like this thing is affects everybody. Right. And it's, you know, core to our bodies and it's core to the dysfunctions that we are seeing in this modern lifestyle, which is so, I mean, right. Like you, you've just described the solution is 80% carbohydrates, 10% protein, 10% fat. I would argue that the vast majority of the U.S., if they're not eating a standard American diet, which is predominantly ultra-processed foods, you know, the other largest contingent is probably on some sort of keto paleo kick, right. which is eating a ton of protein and a ton of fat, right? And then even those of us who are on a plant-based diet, but we're thinking about, hey, I, I got to, you know, I want to keep my muscle composition a certain way, so I'm going to increase protein there. So. So I'm, I'm curious for those of us who uh, maybe aren't dealing with prediabetes, although I would argue that all of us have, you know, we're somewhere on the spectrum, just like cardiovascular disease, like your, your body is breaking down as of like your fifth birthday. It's just at, at what rate are you advancing in that disease right. progression? You know? sure. Like, and, and for those who you know don't know, it's a simple test. Um, you can actually get it where you prick your finger. We actually provide those on our website, not to pitch it, but just to say, sure. ask your doctor for an A1C test very early on or where is CGM, which is just, I mean, it's mind boggling. It gives me such a appreciation for what type ones deal with every single day without a functioning pancreas because the amazing orchestra that our body goes through every single day to keep our blood sugar down. You don't appreciate until you have a CGM and you see those wild swings, you know? 100%. So I can't encourage people enough to go get an A1C test, wear a CGM, appreciate where you are in that spectrum because we're all on it somewhere. So all of that to say, um, do you think every single person should be on an 80% carbohydrate diet, 80, 10, 10? Right. Or do you think that you should be maybe at 60 or 70, 20, 20, right? Like, is it, is it an intervention that you should wait to, to put on? Or is it right. like, no, look, like do it today to prevent. Yeah. In other words, is, is that way of eating a problem solving intervention or is it something that you can do as a preventative tool? Um, or let's both. put it this way. Go ahead. Or both. Or both. Or both. Okay. So just for full clarity. Um, Doug Graham was the first person to plant the idea that there is such a thing called an 80-10-10 diet where it's 80% carbohydrate, 10% fat, 10% protein. I ate that yeah. way for the better part of 14 years. And then I started actually cooking a little bit more food, but I stayed 100% plant-based. Um, even during that time, I started out eating 80-10-10 and then I actually kind of morphed it a little bit to being more like 70-15-15. Because some of the research that I was doing suggested that you know people who are quite athletic do have significantly increased protein requirements, you know, not necessarily to the point where, you know, the paleo and the ketogenic world tell you, you have to be eating 150, 200 grams of protein per day, but, you know, eating slightly more protein can be very beneficial when trying to recover from intense athletic activity. Right. Point being over the course of, 
the 20 years or so, my diet has sort of evolved from 80, 10, 10 towards 70, 15, 15. And our recommendations in our coaching program is actually to be eating somewhere between the two of those. Let's call it high carbohydrate, medium protein, low fat. Okay. High carbohydrate, low fat, low protein, whatever you want to call it. So it's either 70, 15, 15, or 80, 10, 10, somewhere in that ballpark. Right. So to answer your question, do I recommend that for everybody? Well, um, can we use it as a preventative tool and as a treatment tool? And the answer is absolutely. Okay. Now there's a thousand reasons why I can make that statement, but first and foremost, regardless of the, the total macronutrient, what, what your, your macronutrient distribution, whether it's 60, 20, 20, 60, 30, 10, 70, 15, 15, 70, 20, 10, 80, 80, 11, nine, whatever it is, it's, it's, that is less important than trying to maximize your total plant intake on a daily basis. Okay. I would much prefer that you eat 90% or more of your diet as plants and a small amount of animal food or no animal food, right? Rather than you doing it another way, rather than you saying, oh, I'm eating about 50% of my food as plants and 50% of my food as animal products, okay? If you can control that one variable and try and maximize the total number of plants that are going into your body, again, I said somewhere about 90% or more, um, which is quite achievable. And I know it may sound a little bit scary to, to, to many people and that's okay. You know, it, it's something you can definitely evolve into over the course of months to years is fine. But if you can move in that direction and really kind of minimize your animal product intake, what you're going to find is that uh, many things happen. Number one, um, the amount of inflammation, total body inflammation um, in your body can go down significantly, specifically inside of your cardiovascular system. Your cardiovascular system is an incredibly intricate highway that's specifically designed to transport blood and all of the components of blood, thousands of different types of cells inside of your blood that are inside of your immune system that transport oxygen that are there for, uh, you know, anti-inflammatory effects. Your highway system is incredibly important. And when you lower the total amount of, of animal products in your diet, you significantly improve the function of your cardiovascular system. You significantly reduce the amount of atherosclerosis that's present which is the hardening of blood vessels. You can lower your total cholesterol. You can lower your LDL cholesterol. You can lower your blood pressure. And all of those are good things because it's going to keep you on this planet for a longer period of time. Okay. In addition to that, you, all, you also might experience what I've experienced, which is that you just have reduced musculoskeletal inflammation. You have reduced joint pain, reduced muscle pain, reduced muscle fatigue, reduced joint fatigue. All of that is likely to come for the ride. I experienced it. I've talked to hundreds of people hundreds of people that have also experienced the exact same thing. Number three, you might find that you're thinking better. Okay. The, the, the ability of your brain to utilize glucose as a fuel in a plant strong environment is unbelievable. And when you provide your body and your digestive system with a very high plant diet, you will likely find that your brain operates better. Your memory is likely to be better. If you are at risk for uh, depression or anxiety, and if you, that's something you've experienced for a long period of time, a lot of people tell us that when they switch to a plant-based diet, that their feelings of anxiety significantly go down and their feelings of depression significantly go down. And people use it as a tool now specifically to improve their mental health. And then number four, last, but definitely not least, gut health. Gut health has been this massive, massive subject over the course of the last 15 to 20 years. 
And there's a ton of research that demonstrates that not only the quantity of fiber that you put in your mouth, but the diversity of fiber, the different types of fiber that you put into your mouth from eating different types of plant food matters. Okay. Rather than eating your five favorite foods over and over and over again, let's call it chickpeas, mangoes, bananas, dates, and oranges. Okay. If you ate those five foods, you'd be getting a small collection of fibers from those foods. But if you widened it out and you had 30 different types of plants in your diet on a weekly basis, you had some arugula today, some tomatoes tomorrow, some black beans tomorrow, uh, some pinto beans on Thursday, and you just keep things diverse by constantly sort of changing and diversifying your plant intake, the increase in diversity of fiber has a tremendous impact on the function of your gut, which in turn improves the function of your liver, your kidney, your brain, your thyroid gland, your muscles, and your cardiovascular system. So all of those beautiful things come along for the ride. And I strongly recommend that when people make the transition to eating a plant-based diet, you do it over the course of time, you do it very systematically, and you set your sights on trying to get as plant strong as possible. And somewhere along the way, it could be two weeks into it, it could be two months into it, it could be two years into it. You're likely to feel what I felt. You're likely to feel this sort of electric shock, which wakes you up and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this feels good. This feels amazing, right? Thousands of people I've spoken with, and you tell me if you feel the same way too. When you eat a plant-strong diet, it's not just in theory. You feel it and it feels amazing. You tell me, have yeah. you felt that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's always so funny because when I sit down, it's like a big bowl of fruit or a big salad, right? Like you, yeah. you kind of get like giddy you know, yeah. and you're like, wow, like this, I'm like, this just, it looks so gorgeous. It's vibrant. It's like, I just know. And I don't know, maybe it's totally psychosomatic, right? Like you just see like, you've, I've trained myself so much to understand like at a cellular level, what these antioxidants and these flavonoids and all the different benefits that you just outlined, what they're outlined, what they are doing for my body. And as a result, you know, I get that energy, uh, um, or, or just that, yeah, kind of giddy, energetic feeling. Totally. Um, it's real. But I can also attest to some of the other things. I put a lot of strain on my body, and uh, you know, it just keeps it keeps performing for me. So, um, yeah. yeah, can't can't agree more. Um, let's transition uh, over to. Um, a little bit more of, of weight management, weight loss, if you will. Yep. Uh, I think the latest statistics I, I saw was 74% of the U.S. is overweight or obese. It's something like 48% or maybe 44% or so that are obese as mm -hmm. adults. Mm -hmm. You know, kids, it's getting up there as well. I think it's like one out of four kids is already Ugh, obese, brutal. which is just like heartbreaking. It and is. You know, I said, like, let's make a transition, but it's not so much a transition because as we are more and more understanding the, the holistic nature of health, physical and mental, and the idea that all of these behaviors are lifestyle as, a, as, as kind of a grouping, um, uh, you know, either kind of self-reinforced to create that vibrant health, you know, that energy, the 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 state that of wellness, um, or you know, they kind of act in a way that that kind of synergistically undermines our health. 
right? And right. so well when we think about, you know, weight loss or weight management, obtaining an ideal weight, um, a lot of it has to do with insulin resistance, right? And that's everything that we've been talking about, at least for some of those categories of, of metabolic disorders and diabetes generally. So maybe, maybe you can help tie that back together. Like when you think about ultra processed food, when you think about that ice cream, when you think about particularly high protein, high fat carnivore diet, right? Like what's happening on a cellular level that's leading people? And why do we associate obesity with the downstream effects that often include, in fact, I'd say like very, very, very likely include some of these metabolic disorders? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. So the statistics that you shared are real and it's unfortunate because you know, whether it's 73% or 74% or 62%, the fact of the matter is the majority of Americans are now <laughs> overweight, right? More than 50% yeah. are overweight and it's just unfortunate. And, yeah. you know, it's one thing to be slightly overweight and carry an extra 10 pounds on you. It's another thing to be obese, have a BMI greater than 30 and have an extra 50 pounds on, on you, right? The toll that being overweight places on your metabolic tissues is immense, is immense, okay? The toll that being overweight takes on your metabolic tissues is immense. It is a very big deal. And again, kind of similar to what we're talking about with type three diabetes and cognitive decline, you can't always feel it today, okay? If I magically put 30 pounds on your body, but I did it, let's say I put 30 pounds on your body and I did it over the course of a year, right? You, would, you, you wouldn't necessarily feel it as much as if I were to put 30 pounds on your body right now, right? That would make, a, that would be a, a, a giant shock and a giant change. But the fact of the matter is when, when we put on weight slowly over the course of time, it gets to a point where you don't necessarily feel the effects of that. And you also can't feel the effect. You, you can't feel what your heart is feeling. You can't feel what your lungs are feeling. You can't feel what your liver is feeling, but all of these tissues are struggling underneath because they're in an inflamed state and they're constantly operating in an inflamed state 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They don't get a break. And that is a problem because that can end up shortening your lifespan and that's can, that can end up significantly reducing your, uh, or, or increasing your risk for what's called all cause mortality, which is premature death from any cause. Okay. So if we go backwards and try and answer a simple question, like what's actually going on? Like why, why is this happening? Um, if you, when I first got to graduate school back in 2007, I was tasked with the, uh, with, with the responsibility of learning everything that I possibly could about insulin resistance so that I could learn how to induce it and how to rescue it. And so my job was to try and find a way to take laboratory animals, which are, you know, mice and, and rats and not without killing them, get them to a point where they were displaying the effects of uh, insulin resistance and their glucose was elevated and they were overweight. And then get to a point where once they were in that state, I could then reverse it and bring them right back down to their normal weight. So the whole, the, the, the purpose was to try and figure out what are the things that you need in order to become diseased in the first place? And then what are the things that you need in order to become undiseased? And what I learned was absolutely fascinating. I mean, it took me five years to conduct many, many, many different experiments. And the, the, the crux of the, of the situation here is that when I first started trying to figure out how other researchers have actually induced insulin resistance in laboratory animals, I, was, I went into the scientific research and I was searching on PubMed for days and weeks and months 
trying to figure out how did they do it? And what did this group do? And how did these guys do it? And how did these guys do it? And what happened in 1970? What happened in 1990? What happened in 2010? And what I learned over the course of time is that you don't induce diabetes by eating a high sugar diet. I thought you would, because that's what you, that's what the general public believes, right? That's what doctors tell you. Yeah, I, you know, again, I was taught that carbohydrates are bad for me because carbohydrates are going to cause my glucose to go up and they might end up causing weight gain. So I was operating from the, from the perspective that either it was about carbohydrate or glucose or fructose. And it turns out that it was none of that. The truth is, if you want to actually induce insulin resistance inside of an, a laboratory animal, and the same holds true for humans, the way you do it is by eating a diet that is high in fat, a diet that is high in lipids. And when you feed an animal a, a diet that is high in fat, it ends up causing a metabolic traffic jam inside of their liver and inside of their muscle that then creates the state known as insulin resistance. So the, the quick elevator pitch here is this. When you eat fat in food, it's locked up as this molecule called triglyceride. Triglyceride is the storage form of fat in nature. Triglyceride exists inside of an avocado. It exists inside of nuts and seeds. It exists inside of olives and coconuts, you name it. It exists inside of red meat, white meat, dairy products, chicken, fish, you name it, everything. Triglyceride, triglyceride, triglyceride. That is the storage form of fat. You consume the triglyceride. It travels down your esophagus. It goes into your stomach. It starts to get partially unfolded inside of your stomach by the uh, very acidic environment. Then it gets inside of your small intestine. And your small intestine is where you have a whole bunch of digestive enzymes that are there to try and break this stuff apart. So the digestive enzymes are known as lipases, which means things that cut lipids. In other words, things that cut fatty acids. Okay. Then they're also known as proteases, things that cut protein. And they're also known as carbohydrases, which are things that cut carbohydrate. Okay. So inside of your small intestine is where all of these enzymes exist. And they're there to take these really large uh, um, compounds and break them into really, really small individual building blocks. So the triglycerides get cut into fatty acids. The fatty acids end up getting absorbed into your blood. And then when they're inside of your blood, they're transported in these little spaceship particles. There's trillions of them and they're called chylomicron particles. Okay. If you're just listening for the first time, you do not have to remember all this information, but just follow the story. Fatty okay, acids. quiz. <laughs> they get inside of chylomicron particles and chylomicrons have a responsibility. Their responsibility is to take the fatty acids and transport them elsewhere. Get them out, get them out of the digestive system and put them somewhere else. So the chylomicron particles, they circulate throughout large blood vessels and small blood vessels. They go every single place in your, in your body, wherever blood enervates. And they eventually get to some location and they offload the fatty acids. The question is where, where do they offload the fatty acids? Their primary target is to offload fatty acids into your adipose tissue, which is your fat tissue. Your fat tissue is actually the right place to put fatty acids because it's the, it's the enzymatically and mechanically perfect tissue for fat. So if chylomicrons went 100% directly to fat tissue and said, here you go, fat tissue, I got these fatty acids for you and stuck them into fat, diabetes would not exist in today's world. Okay. Diabetes would exist, but it would be a very small, it would affect a very small portion of the population. What ends up happening is that the chylomicron particles deliver fatty acids to your adipose tissue. But then in addition to that, they also, there's a spillover and some of those fatty acids end up spilling over into your liver. And some of those fatty acids end up spilling over into your muscle. Now your liver and muscle are designed to be able to store small amounts of lipid. When they take in those fatty acids, they take them in and they lock them back up into triglycerides. And that's okay, as long as there's a small amount. But what ends up happening is that when you eat a high fat diet or a low carbohydrate diet, they're synonymous with one another. 
You eat fat for breakfast, you eat fat for lunch, you eat fat for dinner. Then you repeat it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Before you know it, the amount of fat that's present inside of your mouth and inside of your digestive system is so high that the chylomicron network gets overloaded, tries to put it in adipose tissue, spills over into your liver, spills over into your muscle. Before you know it, now you have too much fat inside of your liver and too much fat inside of your muscle. The net result of that is that your liver and muscle go into self-defense mechanism, self-defense mode where they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was not designed to take up this stuff, this much stuff. I do not want this much lipids. I do not want this much fatty acid material. Get this stuff out of me. How do I block more stuff from coming inside of me? Well, the single most powerful way to do that is to block insulin because insulin is a very, very, very powerful signal that enables fatty acids and amino acids and glucose to get inside of tissues. So your liver and muscle basically wage war against insulin as a self-protective mechanism. And they say, hey, insulin, next time you come around, I'm not listening to you. So you as the end is the user, you're eating a high fat breakfast, lunch, dinner, you name it. At some point along the way, you might be like, you know what? I'm going to go eat a banana because I like bananas and I just want to eat one banana. So you go and you eat a banana and the banana contains predominantly carbohydrate. So the carbohydrate ends up going the same, same process into your digestive systems. It's acted upon by the carbohydrates, ends up pulling glucose out of your, out of the banana, sticks it into your blood. Now glucose is in circulation and glucose wants to find a place to go. So glucose tries to get inside of your liver, tries to get inside of your muscle, but glucose requires an escort. Glucose requires this thing called insulin. So insulin comes along and goes, all right, glucose, I'm going to try and help you out here. This is what we do. So insulin comes along and goes, knock, knock, liver, knock, knock, muscle. There's glucose in the inside of the blood. Why don't you take it up right now? And your liver and muscle respond by saying, sorry, buddy not listening to you right now. Remember that game I'm playing insulin resistance right now? I can't pay attention to you because I already got a bunch of lipid material. I mean, I got a bunch of fatty acids. I didn't ask for these things. I don't want them, but I have to keep them. So until I can get rid of this stuff, I am not accepting any new fuel piece. And so insulin goes, well, damn it, that's weird. I just tried to get inside. I just tried to get the glucose to go inside and it can't go anywhere. So what ends up happening? The glucose gets inside of your blood and that it can't get out of your blood. So your glucose level starts to rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. Before you know it, people who are eating this way, a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet or a low carbohydrate diet, they all say the same thing, every single one of them. They say, I tried to eat one banana. I tried to eat one potato. I tried to eat three slices of pineapple and I check my blood glucose and I'm high. My glucose is at a 160 right now. My glucose is at a 200. So their conclusion is, well, bananas are bad for you. Potatoes are bad for you. Pineapple is bad for you because when you ate it, your glucose went high. But what they're not paying attention to is the fact that there's already a traffic jam inside of their liver and muscle that existed, that was caused by all the foods they ate before the banana and the potato and the piece of pineapple. And the metabolic traffic jam that was caused by eating these high fat foods is what is causing their glucose to get elevated. So there's a very clear cause and effect. High fat diets today or high fat foods today, high blood glucose tomorrow. And people don't recognize that. So the truth is that if you're going to try and allow glucose to come down and get inside of your muscle tissue, inside of your liver, well, you got to get rid of that, that all that muscle, I'm sorry, all the fat that's accumulated inside of your liver and muscle to begin with. And the way that you do that is by changing the way that you eat. So if you lower your total fat intake, and you do that consistently over the course of days, weeks, and months, before you know it, now all of that, those fatty acids that have accumulated inside of your liver and muscle, they can start to get 
oxidized. They can start to leave. They can start to get basically burned for ATP. And before you know it, now those two tissues wake up and they're like, hey, we're back in action. Screw insulin resistance. Give me some more glucose. I'm excited. So the next question is, well, well how does this deal? What, what, what does this have to do with weight gain? Because everything I just described is basically like, you know, insulin and glucose. And that's what sets the stage for pre-diabetes and type two diabetes and just erratic glucose in general. But here's where it plays into weight loss. And this is like fundamentally important. And this is something that the weight loss world just cannot wrap its head around. And it, and it kind of frustrates me. The majority of the world lives in an insulin resistant state. Okay. So insulin resistance definitely matters for people who are living with pre-diabetes and type two and type one and 1.5 and type three and gestational fine. fine. Great. We've already established that, but insulin resistance is actually a very, very important and powerful condition that underlies your overall chronic disease risk. In other words, as you become more insulin resistant, your risk for many chronic diseases goes up, including all cardiovascular disease, whether it's atherosclerosis, high cholesterol, hypertension, coronary artery disease, okay? It could be multiple forms of cancer. It could be chronic kidney disease. It could be fatty liver disease. It could be in women, polycystic ovarian syndrome, okay? It could be neuropathy, which is nerve tingling. It could be retinopathy, which is in your eyes. It could also be erectile dysfunction, believe it or not. All of these conditions, the severity of these conditions goes up significantly when you're living in an insulin-resistant state. And obesity and weight gain is one of those conditions. So people who are living in an insulin-resistant state don't recognize that the amount of lipid that they're taking on, the amount of fat that they're consuming in their diet, oftentimes causes this metabolic traffic jam, causes a dysfunction in the way that their adipose tissue behaves, in the way that their muscles behave, in the way that their liver behaves. And all of that can lead to and overconsumption of calories, just flat out eating too many calories and not being able to utilize those calories properly. So every moment of every day, they're in what's called positive energy balance, meaning that they're taking on a significant amount of calories and they're not burning all of those, which means they end up accumulating calories, 100 today, 400 tomorrow, 300 tomorrow, and so on and so forth. And before you know it, you know, they've put on thousands and thousands of calories, which translates to a pound here, three pounds here, six pounds tomorrow right? And so what we have discovered over the course of time, and what a lot of the scientific research is now pointing to, is that if you can establish a lifestyle where you become insulin sensitive, aka if you can reverse the insulin resistance process that we just described, you can lose weight without even trying. It's actually one of the sort of like sneaky, you know, uh, convenient side effects that just come along for the ride without even trying. And so what people find is that as we educate them to eat a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, they're actually eating physically more food on their plate. Their plates get larger because there is more stuff on their plate, right? The plates get taller, they get larger. Maybe there's multiple plates and they're like, oh my God, I'm eating so much food. This is incredible. I've never been able to eat this much food before. But yet, because the food that they're eating is very you know, large and has a lot of volume, but it doesn't actually have that many calories, what ends up happening is that they lose weight without even trying. And so in the first month, it's very common for somebody who switches over to eating a plant-based diet to lose something like six pounds in one month. And then by the time they're at month two, they've lost 14 pounds. And by the time they're at month three, they've lost 26 pounds. And they're like, what? This is unbelievable. I didn't even know this was possible. So when people think 
about their own strategies to become more insulin sensitive, as you just said, right? Or to change in their taste buds, because, you know, one of the most amazing things that I, uh, you know, learned to kind of transform my thinking about fat, right, is that it, it's actually an energy storage organ, right? Like it's a, it's a beautiful result of a evolutionary process that kept us alive when fat was actually a very rare thing to find, right? And any excess energy that we would consume, or as you say, that would get trapped into our, into our um, bloodstream would be deposited for later, right? For later right. in a famine situation, but later never comes. <laughs> yeah, well So said. my my question, uh, I should say, later never comes for those of us living in what I would call developed economies where we are blessed to have access to a lot of calories. Unfortunately, most of those calories are now coming in ultra processed food and it's a lot of calories. I mean, Correct. it's a tremendous amount, right? And like it's zero fibers. So you don't really feel that full, but you can just eat like an entire McDonald's happy meal with the fries and like, you know, the, the burger and the Coke, right? And like all of that, it's soft food that just goes right through you and is not satiating in the same way of like those big bowls of fruit and salads that we we're, we're talking about. So what, what is the advice for someone who has an extra 10 pounds, has an extra 100 pounds? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they're on a plant-based diet already, but maybe they're eating a, a fair amount of processed foods or, or just nowhere near sort of the, the level of whole food, you know, whole food, fruits and vegetable kind of diet that we all wish, right? But maybe they're a little bit more on the vegan junk food Side. What are some of the tips and tricks that you encourage to, to help people uh, change their taste, but change their habits and find, you know, that happiness in, in eating a whole food plant-based diet? Yeah, it's a great question because uh, when I made the transition myself back in 2003, I, like I had described earlier, I, I went cold turkey and I yeah. stopped eating, you know, animal-based foods one day on a Tuesday, we'll say. And then I started eating plant-based foods on a Wednesday and I never looked back. And truth be told, if I were to do it all over again, I wouldn't do that. I definitely would not do that because uh, it, was, it was a very rapid transition and there's a lot of like psychological things that changed within me um, as well as endocrine biomarkers, which were changing, including blood glucose and insulin, including emotional feelings of liking certain foods and not being able to eat them anymore. And I mean, it was a lot to deal with for sure. And I mean, I was happy that I made the transition, but I don't necessarily recommend it. So the way that we have sort of, or the way that I've evolved my thinking over the course of, you know, the last 20 years or so is that for most people, nutrition is not an emergency. And I say that in the sense that if you were to decide that you were going to change your lifestyle and try and migrate towards a plant strong diet, and you did it over the course of three months, uh, you would likely find that you'd be able to make a lot of changes within that three month period, but you'd be able to do it nice and slowly, and you'd be able to do it at your own pace. And by doing so, you're going to become a lot healthier, which is fantastic. But you're likely not in a state where you have to make a dietary change today. Otherwise, your health is so at risk that you're, that you're going to die, right? So 
you may be in a state where you're thinking, okay, I got to lose this weight. I got to lower my blood glucose. I got to get my blood pressure down. I want to get all these medications. And I, and I'm, I'm all about that, but be gentle with yourself and give yourself a little bit of time. Time is your friend. Okay. Don't give yourself three years to make a transition to a plant-based diet. Cause that might be a little bit too long. Give yourself three months. Okay. So how do you do it in three months? Well, what, what I like to do is I like to say, okay, if you're, if you're new to eating a plant-based diet, or if you're sort of like tiptoeing about this idea, just change one meal, change your breakfast. That's it. Don't change your lunch. Don't change your dinner. Okay. All I want you to do is eat a plant strong breakfast for, I'm sorry, a plant strong uh, meal for breakfast. And I want you to do that for the next seven days. If you can do a seven day experiment and then you can reevaluate how you feel at the end of that seven days, you're doing a great job. So what people do is that, you know, we give them some recipes. It's like, okay, why don't you make this fruit bowl? Or why don't you eat these, this oatmeal with fruits on top? Or why don't you, uh, you know, have this like tofu scramble with some tomatoes and black beans? And so people get to try, you know, different types of foods, 100% plant-based. And when they do that, they recognize that they enjoy the flavors. They're probably different than what they've been experiencing. The sense of fullness might be slightly different. The amount of food that they're eating might be different. They might have to figure out some logistics of like, do I make this at home? Do I transport it to work? Can I eat it cold? Can I eat it hot? You name it. You figure out all those details. That's on you. But if you can just change one meal at a time, then after a week, you'll have more information. You might be like, you know what? I want to do this for another week. Great. Do it for another week. So let's say it takes two weeks to, for you to figure out what are some new breakfasts that you really enjoy eating. Then you get to a point where you're like, all right, cool. I got the AM hours figured out. I know exactly how much to eat. I know what to eat. I'm cool. Then you move on to lunch. Take another two weeks to figure out your lunch. Figure out all the logistics about that. What do you like to eat? What do you not like to eat? You name it. Then take another two weeks to figure out your dinner. Then take another two weeks to figure out your dessert. If you do it that way, two months go by and now you've changed your breakfast, your lunch, your, your dessert, your breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert. And you didn't do it in a rush. Now it's at a reasonable pace. And when you do it at a reasonable pace, you can also put yourself in an advantageous position. In other words, if you make a dietary change very quickly and you're on multiple different medications, those medications can become too powerful very quickly. Blood pressure medication is a perfect example. If you're taking blood pressure medication and you change your diet to going, you know, cold turkey, plant-based diet, in two days, your blood pressure medication might become so much, so powerful for your body because you're significantly improving your health that you could, you could go lightheaded. You can pass out. I don't want that. And I know you don't want that. But if you take the transition over the course of two to three to four to five weeks, then you can work with your doctor and you can slowly titrate your blood pressure medication down so that you don't run the risk of being uh, hypotensive. Same thing with insulin, same thing with you know, blood glucose lowering medications. All of these things can, your, your, your biological requirement for them can go down so quickly that if you make a change too quickly, you could actually put yourself in a dangerous situation. Mm. So time is your friend and use that to your advantage. I wanna just push a little bit on that, mostly out of curiosity, we're getting into a intellectual area that maybe people listening don't wanna hear, but yep. we obviously think a lot about helping people make this transition and how do we make this transition more effective for people. And one of the things that I often debate with Matt Frazier on is um, I went cold turkey too. And one of the benefits, notwithstanding the need to make sure that medication is titrated because that is a big deal. I mean, you get people who go, you know, on a three-day fast and then they like pass out and it's like, well, right. you know, you, you were this state, right. And you needed these drugs and now you're this state. And like, it's very different. You have to be really sensitive to that, but let's say you're not 
in that category, one of the benefits of going cold turkey is that you do feel remarkably better in a short period of time. And I think that that helps with people's motivation and willpower because they gain this momentum. So I'm just curious. And again, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but how how do you think about that? Because certainly I agree with you. There's a lot of mechanics to work out in like, how do you feed yourself breakfast if you're not eating bacon eggs, right? Like, how do you feed yourself breakfast if you're not eating, I mean, even like cereal, right? Like, I mean, in some cases, right? Like you have to really transform your thinking towards like, you know, a tofu scramble. Correct. So I love your process. I'm just curious if you ever think about like how many people might fall off because they're like, I tried that for, for two weeks. And like, I don't feel any difference. Right. But it's like, well, look, man, you're, you're eating a, a hamburger for, for lunch and like a steak for dinner. And like, you're not going to get that full like sledgehammer effect <laughs> of a fully plant-based diet, which you do feel within days. So I'm just curious if you guys yeah. ever think about that. Yeah, it's a good point, actually. So there's, there's a kind of a pro and con to, to going slowly, just like you're describing. So if we do the flip side and we say, well, what's going to happen to you if you make the transition quickly, like we described, you know, you might have to work with your doctor like very quickly to deprescribe the medication that you may be using. But let's just say you're not using medication and you're just a you know healthy you know 35 year old female who just wants to lose a little bit of weight and just feel better, right? Um, you ultimately can do whatever you want to do. You can make a fast transition, you can make a slow transition. I think you have to have a pretty deep conversation with yourself before you make the transition and and be very clear, with what you think is likely to be the most successful, okay? You know yourself better than I know you. And if you're the type of person that has to, like if you're gonna commit to a lifestyle change or you're gonna commit to something new in your life, if you're the type of person that just like puts all his poker chips in and just goes full bore in and that's your MO and you've done that multiple times in life, whether it's through academics or starting a business or relationships and beyond, then do that. Because if that's going to work for you, do it. And just like you said, you're going to get that sledgehammer effect within the first week. And you're going to be like, whoa, I feel totally different. And most of the time people will feel significantly better. And that's awesome. But if you're the type of person that, you know, the majority of people are not that way. What I've come to learn, I don't know what percentage it is, but I'll say, the people who can execute that is probably somewhere on the order of like five to 10% of the population. The overwhelming majority of people require time um, and require a little bit more of a nuanced approach and need to put the brakes on, especially in the world in which we live today. Most people are just overloaded with stuff. Most people have a husband or a wife or a significant other. Maybe they got kids, maybe they got school, maybe they got a full-time job. Maybe they got sports, maybe they got a gym, you name it, right? These things just pile up and before you know it, you know, your life can get pretty, pretty busy. And so if you're going to make a lifestyle change and the lifestyle change is going to overwhelm you. And before you know it, you're like, oh my God, I don't have time to make this tofu scramble. I really want to, but I can't do it. And then I got to go grocery shopping and then I got to get my Tupperware and then I got to go to the gym. It can be too much. So if you are that type of person that doesn't have very much space for this and, you know, needs to sort of drip feed it into your lifestyle, then do that right? But you are the one that ultimately gets to determine what's the right pace for you. And I'm saying that you can, you can do it in either way. I've just found that the overwhelming majority of people are the latter 
Um, but if you want to do it quicker, then by all means, do do the Matt Tolman approach and just go all in and and see what happens to you because I think you're gonna like it. Hey man, you you do it, you did it too. Right? <laughs> That's true. Anyway, um, I know we're running out of time, but I want to ask one other question because you've given us such a breadth of of education in all things metabolic, you know, and uh, weight management. My my last question is though. I think that largely is talking about the the 25 to 55 year olds in in a variety of health stages. But I want to ask specifically when you look at someone who's over 65, for which, you know, type 1.5, but mostly type 2 diabetes is becoming a majority thing, right? Right. Um, And, but you also hear about like sarcopenia you know, and, and people who need a higher intake of protein because, you know, you don't want them to, to waste away. Um, at the same time, you look at kids who are maybe growing, um, you want to prevent these metabolic disorders, you know, so, so maybe you have them on a high carbohydrate diet, but then you think about, are they getting enough diversity in amino acids to build these proteins? Are they getting enough fat for their brain? I know this in itself is probably another whole book topic, but um, if you could just maybe comment on how do you think about those polar ends of, of the life cycle? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, as you go through the lifestyle, your, your nutritional requirements are certainly going to change the, the like macronutrient profile of uh, what you need when you're a toddler is going to be functionally different than when you're 20 years old, which is going to be different than when you're middle-aged versus uh, being elderly. So there's some research that was done by Walter Longo, L-O-N-G-O, at the University of uh, Southern California. Um, and he demonstrated, uh, he was one of many people that has demonstrated that protein requirements are significantly increased for people who are you know, elderly. And they found that it was about 65 years old and higher. Protein requirements definitely go up because that is a time of life, that is a phase of life when amino acids uh, or when sarcopenia, which is basically muscle wasting, um, is much more likely to happen than at any other earlier stage in life. So if you are at risk for sarcopenia, or if it is a process that is underway in your body, simply because you are 65 years or older, then increasing your amino acid intake, AKA your protein intake is going to have a profound effect on preventing muscle loss. Preventing muscle loss is very important because if you, if you lose muscle, you can actually weaken bones, which can set the stage for osteopenia and osteoporosis. And then that can ultimately shorten your life. And nobody wants that. Um, when, but, but, you know, to answer your question here, it would take us another, you know, two hours or so to kind of like walk through every stage of life, which might actually be a fun exercise to say, what do you need when yeah. you're a toddler? What do you I'm need too. when you're an adolescent? What do you need when you're, you know, in your 20 years and, and beyond? Um, but what we've come to found, so the majority of the information that I'm sharing with you today applies to adulthood. It applies to, you know, uh, I'll, I'm going to say teenagers, you know, mid-teens, north of 65 or, or between 15 years old and 65 as a general rule of thumb, okay? Eating a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, just like we described, 70-15-15 or 80-10-10 is perfectly adequate, is absolutely perfectly adequate for, for that stage of life. And again, what I said earlier is if you happen to be a, an active athlete, whether you're a strength-based athlete or cardiovascular athlete, if you're an athlete and you have, um, you know, significantly increased energy output on a daily basis, your protein requirements will go up period end of story. 
You're going to need a little bit more amino acids to be able to help you recover from intense physical activity, because when you are exercising, you are actually causing micro tears to muscle tissue. You know, Matt Frazier will tell you this all day long. Robert Cheek will tell you this all day long. And many of the other, you know, uh, plant-based um, uh, influencers will also tell you very, something very similar, which is that, you know, your protein requirements absolutely go up. So, you know, that's something that you can tweak. You can go down to 70, 15, 15. I've even talked with some people who go down as far as like 60, 20, 20, and that's totally fine. Okay. So you can, you can definitely play around with this a little bit. And ultimately you're going to have to find the personalization that works for you. Um, there's many ways to slice it. And, uh, you know, the beauty here, like I said earlier, is that just, just embrace the idea of eating a whole bunch of plant material. If you can focus on that one thing and that one thing only to begin with, you're going to find that your life improves in a thousand different ways. And I literally do mean that. And that right there can be the gateway for you to being able to tweak and personalize this over the course of time. That's uh, probably a a great place to end. Um, Thank you for being so generous with your time and and your great deal of wisdom. Um, I will uh yeah probably put my foot in my mouth by saying i've learned more on this podcast than i have in probably any other one hour period of of my life in the past like five years so wow um, i'm that's I, awesome. I'm serious i yeah it's been a long time i mean it's been 10 years since i was starting this journey and did that basic biology kind of curriculum and to understand uh a little bit of that um, the life cycle of food in our body, right? And so, um, I love it. you made it so intelligible and 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 hopefully actionable. Which you know, as you just said, comes down to just eat a lot of plants, and everything else will take care of itself to some yeah. extent, right? Um, right. Maybe get an A one C test. Maybe maybe measure your triglycerides. You know, there's some different ways to to quantify where you're at, and that gives you a goalpost to work around, but. But just keep coming back to eat lots of whole plant foods and a lot will take care of itself. So um, again, Cyrus, thank you so much for your time. I'm I'm so grateful. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. And, uh, you know, I I love educating people as much as possible. And the fact, I mean, you and I are basically carbon copies of one another. You know, we went cold turkey, (laughs) full plant-based diets, and both of us got hit with a sledgehammer that has fundamentally changed everything about us. So- I appreciate hearing your side of uh, the story too, because it's it's great to hear from other people that have actually felt it themselves and seen it themselves. And you're doing an incredible job of helping hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people change their life. And I appreciate you more than I can ever tell you in words. Wow, that's a beautiful sentiment. Thanks, Cyrus. Thank you. Mm-hmm.